I mentioned a few moments ago that next week as Trevor preaches, he's, Lord willing, going to be following up on the passage that we're preaching today, which means next week you'll be looking at what? Psalm 2. And then I told you I'm going to follow up on him, which means that after that we're going to look at what? Psalm 3. And then after that, can you guess where we're going? No, you can't because it's not going to be Psalm 4. Ha, I gotcha. We're going to start our new series, Lord willing, after that. But as we begin this new year, I want us to turn our attention for a few weeks to the book of Psalms, particularly the beginning of the book of Psalms. And I want us to seek to find godly encouragement and biblical wisdom as we prepare for what lies ahead in 2021. 2021 could be the greatest year yet of our lives. Do you realize that? Most of you don't believe that yet. But do you realize it's possible? You say, well, this is what my kids would say. Well, it could also be the worst year yet. And that's true too. So whether you're a pessimist or an optimist, bottom line is we have a new year coming ahead. And whatever it holds, do you realize that Christians can be joyful and steadfast and faithful no matter what? you realize that? The Psalms help us to see what that looks like and how that is possible. So last year, when we had just begun our quarantine due to COVID-19, when we had canceled services and stayed home and done an online Bible study, we looked at the first several Psalms. And we did it for the purpose of finding a biblical perspective on what is going on in the world today so that we would be reminded who God is, what He is up to, and what He has instructed us to do. Well, here we are at the beginning of a new year, and I want us to look at those Psalms again. We do well to come back to passages over and over again. And I want us to seek and to prepare our minds and our hearts to walk through this year in a godly manner. The book of Psalms is one of the most loved and one of the most well-known books in Scripture. It's one of the most devotional books. It's a book that most people often turn to it on a regular basis in all sorts of circumstances looking for godly words, not just of comfort, but for godly words that express what's on their own hearts. Are there days when you feel like you want to look at God and say, what in the world are you doing? What's going on here? You ever feel like that? You realize there are psalms for that? You ever feel like, falling down and praising the Lord, but you don't have the words? You're just overwhelmed? Do you know there are psalms for that too? This is why Scripture's hymn book is such a loved book. It is a collection of psalms used to worship God, to confess our faith, and to express the reality of our own thoughts 
and feelings to the Lord. Now, in terms of the book as a whole, Psalms brings to our view a picture of a life that is centered on God. A life that in grief turns its focus to the Lord. A life that in, in great times turns its focus to the Lord. The book of Psalms shows us the heart and affections of a life centered on God. It shows us how a life centered on God thinks and how it responds to hardships. It shows us what a life centered on God longs for and prays for and pursues. It shows us what a life centered on God thinks about and lives for. All of that and more is revealed as the psalmists pour out their hearts in praise and worship and prayer to the Lord. Psalm 1 serves as a sort of introduction or a prologue to all the rest of the psalms. We have the attitude of the psalms condensed into these six verses. Many believe that Psalms 1 and 2 are meant to be taken as a unit. Psalm 2 builds on what Psalm 1 establishes. And what we'll find this morning is that Psalm 1 reveals to us two different kinds of people on two different paths, living two different lives with two different destinies. And the contrast between these two lives could not be more drastic. Psalm 1 is a warning for us to consider our ways, for not all who gather in worship are truly believers who are blessed by God. It is an encouragement to those who are true believers that their way is indeed blessed and prosperous. And it is a call for us to turn away from the way of destruction, which in this world is the wide and broad path. And it is a call for us to follow the way of blessing, the way of true blessing, which in this world is the narrow road. All of that we find in Psalm 1. So if you would follow along with me as I read this wonderful psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Psalms, as I've mentioned, present to us a portrait of a life centered on God. Psalm 1 begins by proclaiming that God-centered life as blessed. We like that word, don't we? That's a good word. 
blessed. Have you ever seen the license plate? I think it's a t-shirt too, but I've seen it on a license plate that says too blessed to be stressed. We like that word blessed. That's a comforting word. But if we're honest, we often think of that word blessed only in earthly terms, right? Physical terms. Blessed meaning I've had a comfortable day. Blessed, meaning I've paid all the bills and I still have some money left in the checking account. Right. Blessed, as in nobody was mean to me today. But in truth, this word blessed, as it appears in Scripture, is much, much deeper than that. And it is much more solid. And it is a, an all-around much better word than how we often think of it. This word blessed is not talking about anything that is based on how we feel. Nor does it depend on our circumstances. This word is rooted in what God thinks and the favor that God has shown. This word blessed has the idea of a deep-seated joy. Of eternal and even supernatural contentment of complete satisfaction. This word refers to a joyful contentment, a peaceful satisfaction that does not rise and fall with our circumstances or with our emotions. It is anchored in the character and provision of God. This is a blessing that begins not with our station in life, but with regeneration. It begins when we are born again by faith in Jesus Christ. And so it is a, a blessing that belongs only to his people. But this blessing begins at regeneration, and it continues all throughout the life, every moment and every circumstance of the lives of his people, of God's people. And this blessing ultimately ushers us into our eternal home with God. This blessing refers to a godly joy of heart in knowing that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a supernatural happiness right here and right now rooted in the favor of God that rests on us. And so if you were ever wondering about the sometimes perceived hypocrisy of Christians, when one asks another, how are you doing today? And the standard answer is, I'm doing well, how are you? And you think, are we just putting on a show? No, we're not. Because whatever our circumstances when we know this blessing of God, we have been taught to say what? It is well with my soul. This blessing is the supreme and enduring blessedness that belongs only to God's people, to true believers. This means that in every circumstance, we, we are not miserable people. We don't have to hide our grief. Yes, sometimes life stinks and it is hard and we grieve, but we grieve with hope. 
we grieve with a joy that the world cannot explain. We are not gritting our teeth and enduring a depressing and oppressive religion, just trying to get by. When we come to Christ, heaven comes to us. Christ reigns in us, and our joy is made complete in Him. This is why Jesus says in John 15, verse 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is spoken to disciples who were about to experience the darkest moment of their lives as they witnessed their own Savior hanging on a cross for them. And Jesus is talking about fullness of joy. So the blessedness that Psalm 1 brings into view and sets up for the entire collection of the Psalms, this is referring to a total transformation. Where once we were empty and clinging to the hopeless vanity of this world, now we are filled with the joy of Christ in our hearts. It is an overflowing blessedness, not coming from the world, not coming from a stingy God, but from a God who delights to richly pour out His blessing on His people. Friends, do you have that blessedness today? Does what I'm describing make any sense to you? Have you experienced that? There is a happiness that this world cannot offer you. The blessedness, the happiness that this world tries to offer you is a temporary one. It's fragile. It's incomplete. It's fleeting. It doesn't last. It's dependent on circumstances. So it's not trustworthy. And it's certainly not eternal. But in the Lord, in Christ, there is a true joy. There is a total satisfaction. It is permanent. It is strong and it is complete. It doesn't depend on our circumstances, no matter how hard or painful they may be. It is firmly established on God alone. It cannot be shaken. It is a settled thing. We don't have to produce it under our own power. It is not achieved by what we do. It is fixed on what God has done and accomplished for us in Christ. It is a position it is a state of blessing. And my prayer for you is that you this year would know by experience that blessing from God. Now, this blessedness is a gift from God. It is a fixed standing for all who are in Christ, but we need to understand that it is not passive. And the one who receives this blessed gift from the Lord, this blessing from the Lord, whose life is centered on God, is not passive either. Verses 1 through 3 describe the way of life. The way of life for one who has received this blessing from God, who lives according to this blessedness. Because it doesn't just say blessed 
is the man who knows God. It says, blessed is the man, and then describes the life he lives. So, in verses 1 through 3, we find the characteristics of this life that is blessed by God. This blessed life. And there are three key characteristics that we see. First of all, first of all in verse 1, we see that this life that is blessed by God, that lives according to God's blessing, avoids ungodliness. Look at verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Begins by stating this blessed life in terms of the negative. What does he avoid? The positive will come in verse 2. But in reality, these negatives listed in verse 1 are actually positive because they are working toward Describing the life of the one who is blessed by God. The one who would know the blessedness of God and a godly life is one who lives separated from ungodliness, from anything that is opposed to God's character or commands. And so we can automatically assume that Christians are hermits, right? We live isolated from the world, right? No, that's not what this is getting at. We are not called to isolate ourselves from the world around us. The rest of Scripture makes that abundantly clear. And we are especially not to isolate ourselves from the people of the world around us. We ought to be connected. We ought to have relationships with the lost. But as we live in this world, we are called to live in a way that avoids the influence that avoids giving approval of or participating in the ungodliness of this world. We are to be, as they say, in the world, but not of the world, right? In the world as godly influences, but not of the world as under its influence. Now, the ungodliness we are called to avoid is described in three aspects. First of all, the one who knows the blessing of God, we're told, walks not in the counsel of the wicked. This has to do with worldly beliefs and thinking. It is any worldview, any idea or value or approach to life that does not conform to God's character and his design and his purpose. We know what counsel is, right? If you're seeking counsel, what are you seeking? You're seeking advice and direction. Those who know the blessing and favor of God neither seek nor follow the advice and direction of the world. And that's a constant battle, isn't it? Because the world is not short on offering us all manner of advice and direction. Day in and day out. It's on the billboards. It's on the bumper stickers. It's on the radio. It's on the TV. It's in the conversations at work. It's in the conversations in the neighborhood. And you want to know what's even worse? It's naturally written in your own heart. <laughs> Worldly thinking. Ungodly thinking. It's all around us. 
And often it's deceptive because it appears reasonable and safe. And yet have we not experienced that behind that reasonable and safe appearing worldly wisdom, there lies a grave spiritual danger. This is why if we would know the blessing of God, we must be anchored in the truth of his word. We'll get to that more in verse 2. But we need to understand that this is the first point (coughs) on purpose. Because the battle for the Christian life is a battle for the mind. One who knows the blessing of God does not live in accord with worldly wisdom. Instead, he cares what God thinks, and he seeks to live by God's wisdom and direction. So, let me ask you this. How much of the counsel of the world are you letting into your mind in your life? Consider all of the sources of information and values that influence you from one day to the next. How much of the world's wisdom are you allowing to influence you? And compare that to how much of God's wisdom you are putting yourself under. That'll bring us into verse 2 in a moment. This is a strong warning for us, isn't it? If we let our minds take in a steady diet of worldly wisdom and worldly philosophies of this age, we will follow it. We will act according to what is influencing us, even before we realize it. And it will pull our minds away from God and from godly things. That is not the way of blessing. It is the way of destruction. One who would know the blessing and favor of God does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now, secondly, the one who knows the blessing of God does not stand in the way of sinners. Here we take this to another step. We talked about worldly thinking, right? Now we talk about worldly behavior. The battle begins in the mind, but it very quickly affects and influences the actions. That word stand has the idea of taking one's place as a fixture, of settling in as if we belong. And of holding on to something as a way of life. The way of sinners? What is that talking about? It's talking about a path. A life direction. That is marked by sinning against God. You say, well, I'm not living a life of active sin. Well, it very rarely begins that way, right? It's more subtle than that. The way of sinners refers to one whose life's direction is against God and is thus sinful. In other words, one who stands in the way of sinners has allowed himself to be influenced by and and even defeated by sin and who now lives a sinful lifestyle. So, Before we dismiss that and say, well, I'm not living a completely unregenerate lifestyle, here's the question we must ask. What sin has its grip on you today? 
What sin has a grip on you today? Because I'll bet anything, if we narrow it down to a question like that, every one of us can name a sin. Couldn't. You don't have to shake your heads, because we're not going to make this an awkward discussion in public. But you think about that. What sin has a grip on you today? And then ask yourself this question. Are you willing to sacrifice the blessing and favor of God for the empty pleasure that that sin says it will bring you, but will only lead to your destruction? I mean, talk about an unfair exchange, right? The one who knows God's blessing is one who understands that. One who joyfully strives to avoid standing in the way of sinners. And thirdly, the one who knows the blessing of God does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Once sin has conquered the mind and the actions, it soon overtakes the entire demeanor, or if I can use a modern buzzword, identity of a person. These scoffers are mockers, They mock sin. They don't feel the guilt or shame anymore. They have seared consciences that are no longer sensitive to right and wrong. They have been given over, Romans 1 tells us, by God in judgment to their lusts. One who knows the blessing of God must not be one of those people. Indeed, One who has the blessing of God, who lives with a life centered on him, has no interest in being one of those people. Because he has sought godly counsel, he has pursued godly deeds, and he does not sit in the seat of scoffers, nor does he find any enjoyment there. He discerns the evil, he discerns the destruction, because he knows the infinitely greater blessing and favor that he has experienced from God by faith in Jesus Christ. That is true joy. And that brings us to verse 2, where now we see the positive statement about the character of a life centered on God. Not only does it avoid all those things, avoid that ungodliness, avoid that, that evil, but positively it delights in God's word. Look at verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. When you're studying scripture, don't skip over the simple words. Don't skip over the little words. That word, but, is a strong word. It creates a sharp contrast with verse 1. He doesn't seek the things of verse verse 1. He doesn't want them, nor does he need them. Because his heart is set on verse 2. That is the heart of the one whose life is centered on God. And what is that delight? That word delight is not just talking about, ooh, that's nice. Yesterday, took the family and a couple friends to Dollywood where they could enjoy the day in celebration of my daughter's birthday. There was great delight that day right? We could see it as 
the hair was flying everywhere on the rides that were spinning around and they were, you know, all, all this. And you, parents, you know what that's like. There is a certain level of delight there. But this word here isn't talking about that temporal, momentary excitement. This word delight has the idea of intense pleasure. It suggests an orientation of life, a joyful pursuit, an all-consuming passion as a source of joy. And that word is means that this is a constant thing. This, this is, is not just a delight that we experienced 20 years ago when we first became Christians. This is a delight that has continued, in fact, has grown throughout the years. It's an all-consuming delight that drives us. And what is that delight? What is that delightful pursuit? Verse 2 tells us it is the law of the Lord. Simply put, it's the Word of God. Well, we learned this morning what the Word of God is, right? From our question, it's the Scripture. It's the Bible. It's God's revelation of His design, His purpose, his character, and his commands to us. One who has known the blessing and favor of God, who has received his grace, has a new appetite. A new appetite. A new hunger. And that hunger is to know God and to be made holy, to follow his commands. So his delight is in the law of the Lord. He doesn't have to be told to read his Bible. It's not drudgery to him. It's not a chore. It is the highest of our delights. Because it is his delight, we read on his law, he meditates day and night. And we talked on Wednesday night, those of you who were here, about reading plans for 2021, right? And we even talked about an app that will help guide you through reading through a portion or all of Scripture throughout this year. And that app involves a checklist, right? But what did I say? Bible reading is not about the checklist. The checklist is merely a tool to give us some direction and to keep us on track. It's not about completing a checklist. Our delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, the blessed man meditates day and night. It's not about just checking off something on a list for the day and then going on about our day. This is meditation. That word meditate has to do with a reflective thinking and continual pondering. It's not like some say an emptying of our minds. It is a filling of our minds with truth and dwelling on it until we understand it and until it changes us. One who knows God's blessing has a mind fixed on God's word. Morning, evening, and every moment in between. No, that doesn't mean we're to be sitting on a chair reading the Bible 20 hours a day. But it means that the blessed man's mind and heart are saturated with the word of God. So much so that we seek to understand it. And our lives are conformed to what it teaches. We don't just know it, we live it. We know it well, but we study it more. We never assume we have a passage exhausted in our understanding of it. 
we strive in everything we do to live under the influence of the word and to apply it to our lives in every situation. His heart longs for it. The blessed man's mind dwells on it. And it has life-changing effects. It should not be weird for us when we sit down to make a life decision to open our Bibles. And it should be our life pursuit that when we do, we know where to turn. You're not perfect at that yet, and neither am I. But we can grow in it. How do we grow? By filling our minds with the Word of God. And not just filling it with knowledge, but knowing it, studying it, loving it, meditating on it, and prayerfully applying it to life. You know, when we allow our minds and our hearts to dwell on other things, is it any wonder that we often fall into discouragement? sometimes even depression? Is it any wonder that we often lose our joy? We set our minds on our circumstances. We become even more aware of our weaknesses. We, we set our minds on the scary events of this world. That's a sure way to become anxious and depressed and unstable. And even worse, we we spend our time trying to make sense of worldly philosophies and why the world does what it does. And certainly there is an explanation for that. But when we try to sit down and analyze that, and that's all we're doing, boy, that's depressingly confusing, isn't it? But when our minds are fixed on the Word of God, and when we delight in Him, then we are in the place of peace and joy and blessing regardless of what else might be going on around us. So what we're seeing here is that the one who knows God's blessing and favor does not seek joy in his experiences or feelings or impressions because those are unstable. But rather he is committed to the primacy and the centrality of the word of God because there we meet God. There we learn who he is and what he's like and what he's up to in the world today. Our delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, we meditate day and night. And the result of that we see in verse 3. The result of that delight and pursuit, the blessed life is continually growing in grace. The text says he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. That speaks of strength and stability and growth and fruitfulness. That's what a blessed life looks like. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. The picture there is of a strong and healthy tree that has been intentionally planted and cultivated and irrigated so as to receive abundant and constant nourishment from the streams of water. It speaks of all who have come to faith in Christ and who have received the blessing and favor of God. Though all the rest of the world wither and die, this tree will survive and thrive because of the streams of water the superabundant supply of God's nourishing and sustaining grace. 
It's a picture that God's people are rooted in the Word of God. And through that Word and by the work of the Holy Spirit, God changes us. He renews our thinking. He encourages our hearts. He convicts us of sin. He leads us to repentance. He gives us discernment. He teaches us how to live in each moment. The result of that work in this life is the yielding of its fruit, fruitfulness. And what does it say? In its season. It is timely fruit. It is seasonal fruit. It is supernatural and abundant fruit. But it grows in God's time. And it often grows little by little. And it seems to be unique to every person. So the grace for spiritual growth that you've experienced this week isn't the same as what I have experienced this week. Maybe you've grown faster. Maybe you've grown in a way that I haven't. Right? Because your experiences have been different and you've needed a different kind of grace for each moment than I have and then one another has. You see that? It's seasonal. It's timely fruit. God works with his word in the circumstances of our lives to produce the fruit we need at the moment. Sometimes we get discouraged because we don't always see the spiritual fruit that we want. Sometimes we get discouraged because we see a certain kind of fruit in someone else's life that we haven't experienced yet. And when we do that, we end up not seeing the fruit that God's producing in our own life. But don't get discouraged. Take heart, believers. If you and your mind are set on God's word, if you are feeding on it, if you are pursuing him, you will produce fruit. And you will produce the exact fruit that God wants for you to produce when God wants you to produce it in due season. And what's more, we read its leaf does not wither. There is security and stability in view here. Not only does the word of God by the spirit of God produce spiritual fruit, but it also protects us from harm. You know, it's the word of God that keeps us from making ungodly decisions, spiritually harmful decisions, and all-around dumb decisions. Have you ever thought about that? All that the world produces and offers to us and its prosperity and its wisdom, when you look at it from a biblical perspective, is just dry, withered leaves. Or as we see in verse 4, chaff. It will be cast away. It will be burned up. It will not last. But that doesn't happen to the godly. Why? Because they are constantly nourished and they are constantly strong by the grace and the blessing of God. Therefore, we read, in all that he does, he prospers. Now there's some comforting words, right? That's not talking about the empty vanity of a health and wealth prosperity gospel. Don't ever let Scripture lead you down that road, because it's not leading down that road. False teachers are. That's not what this is talking about. What this is talking about is a prosperity of the soul, of a spiritual health that causes God's people to thrive in bearing fruit, spiritual fruit, 
even in the harshest of times. Even in those moments of grief and pain and sorrow and struggle and frustration and uncertainty. In all that he does, the psalmist says, whatever it is, this blessing and favor of God thrive in the believer's life. And he prospers. Does that describe your life? Do verses 1 through 3 describe the character of your life? Avoiding ungodly influences? Delighting in God's word? Bearing spiritual fruit? I'm not talking about perfection. Not one of us is perfect. Not one of us is even close to perfect. But do you see progress here? Is this the orientation and direction of your life? Your mind, your heart, your soul. Is this your priority and pursuit? Examine your hearts. Consider your ways carefully and prayerfully. This is the way of a life blessed by God. Now, in verses 4 through 6, we see a contrast to all of that. It's a sharp contrast. This contrast highlights the importance of the godly life described in verses 1 through 3 by showing us the ungodly life, the character and the destination of an ungodly life, one that is not marked by God's blessing, but is marked by God's curse. It is a drastic and complete contrast. In verse 4, we read that the wicked are not so. This has to do with their character, and it is literally not so, the wicked. In other words, everything that we just saw in verses 1 through 3 is the complete opposite of the ungodly life. So look back at verses 1 through 3. And let's, let's change it now to describe the ungodly life. They do walk in the counsel of the wicked. They do stand in the way of sinners. They do sit in the seat of scoffers. They do not delight in the law of the Lord, nor meditate on it ever. They are not like a tree planted by streams of water. They do not yield fruit. They wither. They do not prosper. You say, can you honestly say that describes those who are not in Christ? Yes. Because that's how God sees them. Though in this world they may appear successful, they may appear joyful, and they certainly are at peace in this world many times. And they may have even deceived themselves and others into thinking that they are good and are doing well, but they simply are not so in God's eyes. Don't let earthly circumstances deceive you. Look at the world, look at your own heart, look at one another through the eyes of Scripture. How does this describe them? They are like chaff that the wind drives away. You see that? The godly man's leaf does not wither, but the ungodly one is like chaff, which is a dried and withered leaf, blown away at harvest time. No substance, no weight to it, 
blown away, or burned up. And while the godly one is firmly rooted in God's word and stable in every storm, the ungodly one is driven about by every wind of doctrine. That's why the world can't seem to make sense of anything these days, right? And that's why we can't make sense of the world's philosophies because they changed dramatically in 2020. And guess what? They're going to change dramatically again in 2021. And we don't know where it's going to end up. We know the general thrust. We know the direction it's headed. But one who is not rooted in the word of God, whose life is not centered on God, is driven about by all that changing uncertainty. And having no root and no fruit in and of himself, Nothing on which to stand one day will be driven into the fire by the wind of God's eternal judgment. That is the character and destiny of the ungodly. And that brings us to verses 5 and 6, where we see their destination described even further. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Say, wait a minute, they're going to escape the judgment? No, they'll be there but they won't stand. They will not survive. They will be consumed. And then we read, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. There may be a mix of unbelievers in the assembly of the saints today, but it will not always be so. They will not remain under the common grace that God is allowing them at this moment. God's perfect and all-knowing and all-wise discernment will separate the godly from the ungodly, and the godly will enter into the eternal blessing of their Lord, and the ungodly will perish forever. As we read in verse 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So this psalm confronts us with a serious and sober warning of the separation that will occur at the end of the age. The righteous in Christ will be blessed eternally, while the ungodly will perish. And what is the key difference between those two groups of people? Well, the one group of people got their act together and did all the right stuff, and the other group of people didn't, and that's why this is going to happen that way. Nope, that's not it. The key difference here is the grace of God alone in Christ alone. You see, when Scripture describes the blessing of God on his people, it never does so in terms of God's people earning it on their own. The blessing in favor of God is described as being something that God bestows on his people in spite of their sinfulness. God initiates that blessing. God gives it unconditionally. So the difference between the blessed and the cursed is not that the blessed are better than the cursed. That's not it. We are all cursed by nature. We are all on our own destined for that judgment. We are all sinners. But there is great news in this psalm. The greatest of news, that though the wicked will perish... God has made a way of escape. You know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's blessing. That's the ultimate divine favor. And those are the two destinations outlined in Psalm 1. Perishing or eternal life. And we are told in Romans 10.13 that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. They will be transferred from that death unto life. From that curse to blessing. All who will turn away from sin and the sinful ways of this world. Who will look to Christ by faith, who will follow God's word and look by faith to him alone for mercy and salvation, will not perish with the wicked, but will receive God's blessing and favor and eternal life. And for all who are in Christ, this psalm is a call to pursue godliness, to pursue righteousness, and to live for that heavenly blessing. It is meant to encourage us. It's meant to instruct us in the way of true, godly living and joyful living. Christians, do verses 1 through 3 describe you? Is that what you are pursuing in your life? Examine your hearts and respond. Don't let this message die when the service is over. Go home today. Look at Psalm 1. Look at those first three verses. Examine them line by line again. And ask the Lord to reveal to you where you have fallen short or lost your way. And then repent. And in His grace, He will lead you back to the way of blessing. And if you're among us this morning and you're not a Christian at all, you've never come to that point of repentance and faith in Christ. The appeal is the same to you. Turn from the way of destruction. Look to Christ by faith and call on him for salvation. For all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray.